30 for 30 podcast is brought to you by Delta Airlines. Delta flies to 300 cities around the world. That's 300 cities where everyone does the same things you do. That's 300 cities where the people in those 300 cities think they're the only ones who know about that one place. 300 cities where people miss someone in one of the other 299 cities. 300 cities where people sing in the car or in the shower or both poorly. Delta isn't flying to 300 cities merely to bring us together, but to show us we're not that far apart in the first place. Delta, keep climbing. Hello and welcome to 30 for 30 Podcast. My name is Jody Avergan. If you're keeping track, this is the ninth episode in our anniversary series, marking a decade of 30 for 30 films. This has been a really great series. We've tried to touch on a lot of the signature films over the years, and today's is no exception. We knew that this team was going places. That's why everyone was so looking forward to the following year. Um, during your sophomore year at Duke, did you attend a party at the house of the captains lacrosse team last March? I did. And were there dancers at that party? There were. Fantastic Lies is a film that examines the so-called Duke Lacrosse scandal, which was a widely reported 2006 criminal case in which three members of Duke University's men's lacrosse team were falsely accused of rape following an off-campus party that included exotic dancers. The film mostly focuses on the period of time between the incident and before it became apparent that the rape had not occurred. In that time, the story became a national media sensation. It sparked campus protests and conversations about sexual assault, rape culture, and the role of athletics at a university. The three students, the team, and their families were at the center of a massive firestorm. Also at the heart of the story was the initial prosecutor, a man named Mike Nifong, who was extremely aggressive in pursuing the case. Many felt that he was ignoring the evidence, grandstanding as he prepared for an upcoming election. He was eventually removed, disbarred, and jailed for his conduct in this case, and no charges were brought against any of the players. Fantastic Lies, the film tries to go beat by beat to understand how this scandal erupted. It is an extremely nuanced and thorough film about the particular case, but it's also one that gets at big questions about justice, sexual assault, media narratives, and college sports. So in this episode, I'm joined by director Marina Zenovich to talk about the making of the film. And then later in the episode, Paula Levine, one of ESPN's top investigative reporters who has broken a number of stories about sexual assault at universities like Baylor and Michigan State. This is a really great conversation, and we will start it with director Marina Zenovich. Here we go. Welcome to the 30 for 30 podcast, and thanks for, for chatting about the film that you've made. Sure. I mean, this film was something that kind of came to me unexpectedly. And it is a film that I uh, means a lot to me, because it was such a sensitive subject to the people who were in it. So you always feel like you have a, a you're carrying a lot on your shoulders when you're telling these stories. But this one was particularly difficult. And so on that front, I mean, how much did you know about this story going into it? Did you kind of have the sketch that I think a lot of the public had, uh, which ends up being, you know, wrong in a number of ways, but like, how much did you know? 
I didn't know that much. I mean, I I can specifically remember, I think I was at a Starbucks and I saw the New York Times and I picked it up while I was waiting in line and it was on the front page, you know, about this uh, alleged rape that had happened at Duke University. And it was just kind of like, wow, this is <laughs> holy smokes, you know, so I kind of just clocked it and didn't really follow it. It's always best when you come to these things and you don't know a lot. Um, because then when you're asking questions, you're really coming from a place of, of, of curiosity as opposed to kind of knowing something already. But, it, but this film is so much structured around a strong sort of narrative that took hold so deeply um, about, you know, this this party with strippers and the stripper who's claimed she was raped um, and then a media narrative that, that takes off from there. Um, and then, your you know, your film is sort of pro- cutting against that. So how much did you feel like you needed to like establish that narrative, but not reinforce it, if that question makes any sense? We decided to build it in such a way that it would look like they were guilty and then we would slowly pick away at it. Mm-hmm. And the only reason we were able to do that was because we got so many great interviews with it didn't feel like it at the time because we didn't get the boys and we didn't get coach Pressler, but we got enough of the insiders the parents and then eventually i got different lacrosse players to speak to what was happening Um, but i really wanted at the end to list all the people who wouldn't talk to me so people understood how sensitive this was and how you know People didn't want to talk, but we were able to get those that did. I mean, they were really speaking from from just a, a dark place and a dark time in their lives. Yeah. So when you talk about the people who didn't talk to you for the film, um, I mean, w- w- is there one particular perspective or one particular character who you most wish you could have gotten an interview with? Is it Naifung? Is it the, the prosecutor? I really wanted to try to speak to the three boys who were charged. That's basically Colin Finnerty, Reed Seligman, and Dave Evans. When I realized I wasn't going to, I decided to go to their parents. And I ended up speaking to Trisha Dowd. And I took the train to Long Island to meet her at a diner. And she, you know, they all are just kind of checking out whether you can be trusted. Because some people, especially with a story like this, they didn't trust anyone. But Trisha Dowd wrote to me and said, I asked my son if he wanted me to talk to you. And he said, yes. What was so interesting to me is that I think these boys wanted their story to be told. They didn't necessarily want to be the ones telling it, but they wanted someone to tell it. She's a great line in the movie where she says, you know, I said to my son, Kyle, when you want me down there, just call me and I'll come down there. And he's like, Mom, I need you to come down. My husband and I got a phone call at 1.30 in the morning and it was Kyle on the other end of the phone. And I just said to him, you know, when you need me, Kyle, I'll be down there. And he said, I need you. You saw how these were young boys and they didn't really know what was happening. And I mean, just the stakes were so high. And 
having the parents, I felt like they could speak better to what had happened because they were the they were the grown-ups, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, these these were kids. His first response was disbelief. People were counseling him, Mike, give somebody else this case. You don't need this right now. Something had happened. I mean, he, he knew that. If she was prepared to go into court, he was prepared to have her there. When this story first came out, you know, the prosecutor, Nifong, really ran with it and wanted to kind of build his own narrative of what happened. But you didn't think you were ever going to get from him a mea culpa of any sort? I don't think so. Hmm. I mean, I, I, you I know, mean, watching it, I wouldn't expect it, but I just wonder if you... Yeah, if you, right, right, yeah. right. I mean, it's kind of like, yeah. look at what, the, what we're living in today. I mean, it's kind of like people live in their own reality. Yeah. And he has his own reality about this story. And his reality didn't mesh with all the people that I spoke to. Everyone in this film was across the board was was perfect. Ruth Sheehan, who, um, you know, ended up having a big mea culpa, um, was had the courage to speak to me and kind of admit that on camera. After we did her interview, my my DP Wolfgang Held said, you have a movie. And I said, why? And he said, you can see it in her eyes. I have the chills. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, he, I'm just busy trying to get her to say things. So I'm not, I'm looking at her eyes, but I'm not focused on it. He's behind the camera looking at her eyes and he's like, you have it. And I mean, then I looked at the interview and I'm like, oh my God. There was this, um, outrage in the community. So I wrote this first column that really touched a nerve with people, asking the members of the lacrosse team who were present in the house to actually say what happened. Members of the Duke men's lacrosse team, you know. We know you know. Whatever happened in the bathroom at the stripper party gone terribly, terribly bad, you know who was involved. Every one of you does. And one of you needs to come forward and tell the police. So, you know, one of the advantages of watching these films across the whole series many years later is you kind of start to see it through naturally the the lens of current conversations. And this one, I think, in a number of ways speaks to this moment, just like this notion of of media trust. I will say I'm a card-carrying member of the media, and I think a lot about kind of a time in which people dismiss journalism um, when it doesn't agree with their opinions. But then this is also a story that I think has a lot of lessons for journalists in terms of like realizing that you have a responsibility to get things right and that you shouldn't always trust the seductive uh, narrative. And moreover, like if you get it wrong, people will use that against you. I mean, this this story and the way that it was picked up in the press had lasting damage, I think, for media credibility. Tell me if you think I'm if I'm wrong there. I think you're right. And in hearing your question, I think about how big a role ego plays in this. You know, if people in America were willing to just say I was wrong, 
a lot of men don't like to say I'm wrong. I thought it was interesting that Ruth Sheehan came out in my film and said, you know, I was wrong mm -hmm. and I'm sorry. And I think we need a little more of that. But no one really wants to say that they're wrong. It, it's almost like they can't show that they did anything wrong when, when, when you know, kids' lives were at stake. So in taking, in taking this film on, either at the time or maybe just thinking about kind of it now, um, it's a film that, and it's a story that like teaches so many of its lessons almost like it backs into the lessons because it is counterintuitive, mm -hmm. right? It's about a, a a rape that was not a rape. It's about a media story that then was proven wrong. Um, but so many of the lessons are still like, it's important to believe people. It's important to have, uh, you know, strong prosecutors and, and cr a criminal justice system that's held, that holds people accountable. It's like, did you worry at all, I guess, that you were cutting against some important larger stories by telling a story that is in so many ways like the exception that proves the rule or whatever phrase you want to use? You know, it's funny. I never, ever, ever think about like, ooh, maybe I shouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. In the case of Fantastic Lies, I just wanted to tell the story. I do have to say that one filmmaker, female filmmaker, came up to me um, who I like very much, but came up to me and said, why did you tell this story? Hmm. <laughs> what do you think she was, was like, getting well, at with that? I think she still thought that they did something because that was such a big narrative. And it was quite interesting. But I just said, you know, I'm sorry, I wanted to tell the story. And hmm. I'm glad that I did. You know, another way this ties into something that is feels like a conversation we're having more and more now and maybe not as much back when the film was being made is just this general notion of the power of prosecutors and district attorneys and that a powerful pros prosecutor or DA, um, that's really where the power lies within a justice system. And I was wondering if that, you know, and I'm wondering if that's something you knew about in advance or thought about if throughout making this film and whether that's kind of emerged as something you think about in the years since. You see how things get done kind of behind the curtain, behind closed doors. And it's it's tragic, you know. I kind of feel like I come from the place of wanting to do the right thing. So I just assume that other people are doing the right thing. But what you realize is that, you know, it's a, a lot of people do things for ego or power or control or money or status or press. Um and that was definitely the case, any kind of combination of that with Nifong yeah. um, in this case. You know, and one of the kids in the film is really thoughtful about this, too, saying that, look, if, if someone like me who has a lot of advantages at my disposal can get railroaded, imagine what can happen to someone who's less powerful uh, and facing a powerful prosecutor and a justice system that's out to get them. And that's just sort of a sort of really... And it's a really thoughtful thing to have heard coming out of the mouth of one of these players who went through this and also certainly something that really ties into larger conversations we're having today. This entire experience has opened my eyes up to a tragic world of injustice I never knew existed. If police officers and a district attorney can systematically railroad us with absolutely no evidence whatsoever, I can't imagine what they'd do to people who do not have the resources to defend themselves. 
This is a very 30 for 30 thing. We've spent all this time talking and we haven't even talked about sports yet. Um, but, you know, on that front, I mean, did you feel like, um, you know, what did you feel like you learned about the role of a sports program at a big sports school like Duke and the way that it kind of and, and the sort of power structure that's built around it? It's all politics and appearance and power. I mean, it's 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 really upsetting. Everyone is trying to protect themselves and their position and their job. And it. I think one of the parents says in the film, you know, would this have happened if it was basketball, if it was Coach K? Probably not. So it's like a lot of this has to do with power and money and But what's interesting is in the case of the university, they didn't really know what to do and who would know what to do. I think now, because of cases like the Duke lacrosse case, universities know a little better what they should do in a situation like this. But Mm -hmm. it's really like you have the blind leading the blind. Yeah. You know? You know, I thought for a long time about kind of continuing to chase this kind of story because it seems like it kind of there are these stories that come out every year. Um, but hopefully the the institutions of higher learning have tr- have figured out how to kind of do the right thing. Marina Zanovich, thank you so much for chatting um, and thanks for doing all the great work that you do. Thank you. That's director Marina Zenovich, and coming up, we'll pick up on that thought of hers about whether or not universities have gotten any better reacting to these kinds of issues. That's after the break. 30 for 30 podcasts are brought to you by State Farm. These days, everyone is busy and may not know where to start when it comes to insurance. Well, State Farm has over 19,000 agents across the country who are here to help life go right. They're willing to sit down and take the time to understand what's important to you and create a customized plan to help you protect it. Think of your State Farm agent as that person on the court who is always reading the defense and knows exactly where you'll be even before you get there. When you have a State Farm agent on your team, you can always trust that they've got you. State Farm, here to help life go right. Thirty for Thirty podcasts are brought to you by OnStar. For over two decades, OnStar has been giving their members peace of mind behind the wheel. Now, no one likes to think about getting in a crash, but it happens more than we care to admit. If it happens in an OnStar-equipped vehicle, you have people looking out for you. With automatic crash response, special sensors can alert OnStar advisors of an impact. They can connect to your vehicle, take stock of the situation, and get you the help you need, even if you can't ask for it yourself. Because when the unexpected happens out on the road, the last thing you want is to be alone. OnStar is available on Chevrolet, Buick, GMC, and Cadillac. OnStar, be safe out there. Automatic crash response requires OnStar plan, working electrical system, cell reception, and GPS signal. OnStar links to emergency services. Limitations apply. Visit OnStar.com for details. And now to part two of our conversation. The Duke lacrosse case took place in 2006. The film Fantastic Lies was made about 10 years ago. In the time since, there's been lots of important work done and lots of important big conversations emerging about sexual assault on college campuses and beyond. 
Paula Levine is a senior investigative reporter for ESPN. She has done investigations into Baylor University, its football program, and how it has handled sexual assault on campus. She also recently did a major investigation, Spartan Silence, into Michigan State University that recently won a Peabody Award. The Duke Lacrosse case was incredibly high profile, but much of the investigative work that Paula and her colleagues do involves uncovering these stories for the first time. So I started by asking her about her approach to these stories and how she finds them. I mean, part of the reason that they are uncovered is because so many of these women are afraid to come forward. I mean, it's hard enough for any woman who reports being sexually assaulted or being the victim of domestic violence to come forward. Uh, It's just it's difficult But you add the fact that if you come forward, you are reporting against a very popular student athlete, uh, a team that is beloved and and cherished by fans and the university. And so it sort of compounds the 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 challenge for these women to to want to report these instances. I was raped at Baylor. What does it take for universities to start taking a stand and saying that we can win football games without these predators? How many women do you have to destroy for people to finally stand up and say, like, we're demanding something better? When my colleague Mark Schlebaugh and I started to look into Baylor, what we found was there were a lot of examples of women who had reported incidents against student athletes who were not given the services that they should have been given in terms of academic support, counseling, um, you know, having the case go through an actual like judicial proceeding. And then we came across a lot of cases that had never been reported before and that had never reached the, the level of investigation that they needed to. Investigators found that Michigan State athletes have a reputation for engaging in sexual harassment and sexual assault and not being punished. Todd Haywood says that school officials have actively tried to suppress information about sexual assault investigations for years. They heavily redacted that report. There were pages of just blacked out chunks with he said and she said. It was astounding and astonishing to me how much they were trying to hide. You know, when you look at how universities respond to these kinds of incidents or these patterns, even as they emerge, it feels like, you know, in some cases, I get the sense that a university just sort of puts its finger in its ears and tries to ignore the problem and hope that it'll go away. And, you know, in Fantastic Lies, you sort of see Duke's really flat-footed response in that on that front. And then there's other times, and especially in a lot of your reporting, where you kind of say, wait a minute, no, there's there's something more akin to a concerted strategy to to hide some of this. Um, behavior and cover it up. So I don't know where you land on that spectrum and if you can sort of draw in a more general sense kind of how universities tend to respond in these kinds of kinds of cases. I think it's a combination of, of factors. Um, I think that there's just some willful ignorance. I think in some cases, when you come down to some individuals involved, there is an active effort to to try to, you know, prevent information from getting out or you know, not not reporting things to the right channels. And Baylor's unique because it's also a Christian school, right? Mm-hmm. So you have that compounded issue of um, 
you know, as as our Christian beliefs are, we don't even want to acknowledge that people are having consensual premarital sex. Getting us to the point of acknowledging that people are getting sexually assaulted is like a, that's you know that that's that's conflicting with you know where where their um, where their mindset is, and so I think that's why a lot of cases there just sort of fell on deaf ears. Like it just was so outside their wheelhouse. Can you get in the mind of an administrator who is sort of justifying their behavior to themselves in these situations? I mean, what are the pressures? What is the thinking um, that that you've observed from an institutional level? I think a lot of it comes back to risk management. They sort of fire back with, well, you know, we have student privacy concerns. And if we, if we were more transparent about this, then we're, then we're jeopardizing student privacy. Now, you can argue whether or not they make that argument simply not to reveal information, but that's that's really sort of where you see their their mindset. And then I think at the at the lower level, like when you're talking about um, things like assistant coaches, I think in some cases there's just a lack of of education on what they should do. I think also when within athletics. Athletic departments are so insular. Sometimes you see these reports and they never make their way out of the athletic department is because there has always been this sort of mentality of we take care of our own and we handle stuff, um, you know, internally. And you see that even in Fantastic Lies. There's this, you know, a close ranks mentality when faced with a crisis. Yeah, absolutely. Can you can you tell us what a good response or strategy looks like? Can we is there a university that we can point to and say, they are both handling sexual assault allegations well, and then moreover, in turn, you know, doing the work to reduce the number of assaults to begin with. There are schools that, uh, you know, are are clearly doing what the U.S. Department of Education, what advocacy groups, what student groups are asking of them to do. I think there's been a real improvement in education for students and then specific targeted education for athletes on issues of consent and issues of reporting and issues of bystander intervention. A lot of schools have brought in survivor advocate Brenda Tracy, and uh, she is is a woman who um, several years ago in the late 90s uh, said she was gang raped by some players at Oregon State University. She comes into the schools, into the colleges, and, and she's now sort of ventured into to professional teams as well. And she tells the story of what happened to her very graphically. And she's a dynamic presenter. I was at one of her um, presentations to the football team at the University of Arkansas. And I mean, there's a room with 100 guys and you could hear a you could hear a pin drop. I mean, they were riveted. Thank you. So Thank you. I appreciate you guys being here. Thank you for coming Thank and you. speaking with us. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. They don't just leave. They come up. They shake my hand. They give me hugs. They say thank you. They share their stories with me. You know, I was asked not too long ago. You know, if I could go back, would I change anything? And I think I absolutely today could say I wouldn't. I would if I could go back and stop my gang rape. I wouldn't do it. That kind of makes me want to cry (laughs) because it's so painful. But at the same time, the fact that I can use that pain to help others makes it all worth it. 
Yeah, and your description there, I mean, just brings to mind we're actually doing another episode in this series about Chris Heron, who is a former player who has struggled with uh, you know, depression and drug abuse and alcohol abuse and, and just has a really powerful story to tell when he goes into schools. And it's just kind of a reminder of the power of, in addition to all these institutional things we've been talking about, the power of just um, connecting with people and, and sort of having them evaluate their their choices on on, on any given day. Um, if we if we can talk a little bit about the kind of scope of your reporting and this particular moment in in your reporting, um, there's actually a moment in in the film Fantastic Lies where where someone makes the point that when there's a false allegation like there was in that film, you know, it makes it harder for future sexual assault victims to be heard and believed. I wonder what you make of that argument and whether that's actually something you encounter as you do this kind of reporting. Oh my gosh, all the time. All the time. And it, it's become a little less as we've gotten farther away from the Duke lacrosse case. But there was a time when any time there would be an allegation against an athlete and people would start, you know, sort of building the criticism, everybody would be like, Duke lacrosse, Duke lacrosse, huh. Duke lacrosse. I don't mean to say it like that to minimize that. I mean to say it like that to amplify it. That, um, you know, I, I think nothing... Uh, I think aggravates the uh, survivor community more than a woman who knowingly comes forward and lies about something because that is so incredibly damaging to the overall effort to get women to come forward, to, to get people to believe what they're saying. There are a lot of cases where an investigator is not able to prove one way or the other. That is very different than a case where you have someone who at the end of the day admits that she intentionally and and possibly maliciously made it up. It's it's very, very rare to actually be able to prove that someone just completely fabricated uh, something that that happened, something that they say happened. So ultimately, I mean, wh- how, where do you come down in terms of how we should talk about false allegations, films like Fantastic Lies. I mean, is it like we should ignore these stories given the larger context or what, you know, how do we, how do we treat them? As much as women who have been sexually assaulted or been the victim of domestic violence should be encouraged by reporting on cases to come forward. I also think by reporting on these cases where you, where women have admitted that they have lied Um, They need to be out there, too, to show how damaging it is to discourage women from doing that. Right. Mm -hmm. You're I mean, in both cases, you're trying to get people to do the right thing. And and I think there's I think there's value in that. And I think showing how damaging the Duke lacrosse case was to that overall effort, you know, should be a deterrent to women or men. I mean, we always say women as being the the alleged victim, but there's men too. Should be discouraging to anyone to purposefully lie about this. Can you kind of characterize how reporting on these kinds of issues has changed over the last few years? What, what the Me Too movement brought was a couple of things. One is a greater understanding of how sexual assault happens, of why women sometimes don't report it, why it's so difficult to prosecute these cases and have them result in any sort of disciplinary action. And then it also obviously prompted a lot more women to come forward. Women who had, who had, you know, never felt like they were in an environment to be believed. I think it created this comfort zone 
for a lot of women who felt that they were alone, and that's one of the biggest barriers to to coming forward and reporting, they now felt like, I'm in this safe place. People are going to believe me now. So now I'm going to come forward and, mm-hmm. and share my truth and and not feel as though I'm putting myself as much at risk as I as I had been previously. Although, you know, one thing I would say, I still feel like there is a stigma on women who come forward and report against popular athletes. Yeah, I think in large part, it is because these athletes are so beloved and these fan bases are so strong and there is so much blowback against these women for coming out that thought of, you know, these, these girls are, you know, quote unquote Jersey chasers and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, they're targeting these athletes. This is the great irony, right? You look at the history of the campus sexual assault awareness. And I think it's fair to say there would be no campus sexual assault movement if it were not for these young women who came forward to report these cases against athletes because those cases were the ones who got the media attention and those cases were the ones that moved the needle. And in many cases, regardless of what may have happened with that particular athlete or that particular uh, woman, those cases also affected change. And yet, despite the fact that these women's reports coming forward has made the environment better for all women on these campuses, I think a lot of these women who've come forward to report athletes are still viewed as pariahs. Paula Levine is a senior investigative reporter for ESPN. You can find her work on Outside the Lines and ESPN.com. And earlier, we heard from Marina Zenovich, director of the film Fantastic Lies. You can find Fantastic Lies and all of the films in the 30 for 30 catalog on our streaming service, ESPN+. There's a link to sign up for that in the episode description. Tomorrow, the final episode in this 10th anniversary series, Jalen Rose and David Jacoby are here to talk Fab Five. You wanted to see them. They were must-see television. Throws on the run. Three on two to King. Already, baby. Here they go. The Wolverines. Fab Five came in there with their own rules as a whole bunch of young bucks with, quote-unquote, no experience. That's a fun conversation. Jalen says some things in there that I hadn't really heard him talk about before, so be sure to check it out. My name is Jody Avergan. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more 30 for 30.